Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Uh, my guest today is Jeff Paul, former U.S. Army member, uh, private security contractor, and uh, probably some other things uh, without muddying up the waters. Let's dive right in and introduce him. Jeff Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. Um, go ahead, sir. Oh, no, absolutely. It, it, it's my, my, my pleasure. I'm glad to have you on, and thank you for accepting the invite. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Now, you just wanted a little bit of insight. Um, I'm prior Army, nothing special. I was an 88 Mike, 45 Bravo, and 11 Bravo, which truck driver, weapons maintenance, and infantry. Nothing special. Um, I served in the first Gulf War. I was senior gunner of convoy security on a transportation company. And then I got out in 97, and it was just, it was time for me to step away because of politics. Um, after 9-11 happened, well, when I got out, let me back up a little bit. I, when I got out, I was E6 promotable, didn't have one blemish the whole time I was in. You know, did the secure, uh, convoy security in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And then 9-11 happened, and I wanted back in. I wanted back in desperately. But Uncle Sam said, oh, you're about 30% disabled. We don't want you anymore. I told Uncle Sam, I said, well, hey, I'll drop the hammock. I'll go back in as a 5. I'll go back in as a 4. I want in. And he said, no, can't do it, no waivers. And this was, you know, long before soldiers being injured nowadays are missing limbs and can still serve. Well, one of the guys I served with... He contacted me and told me about a company called Coach's Consultancy, and they were doing security work for the DOD, and he, he had told his boss about me, you know, my background with weapon systems and everything else and Desert Storm and the convoy security. And the boss man, which is Jesse Johnson, retired colonel, um, special operations commander during Shield Storm, he said he wants me on board. So... I talked to my wife about it, and she supported me wholeheartedly because she knew that I wanted to get back in to serve my country, and this is a way to do it. Right. Well, well Uncle Sam didn't want me, and I, I, I got back into the game whatever way I could. Hmm. So, <laughs> that's, I mean, that, that, that it, it's mildly amusing because I've talked with a number of guys over the years, and I had a similar experience, although... They actually would let me back in, but it would have been at a re reduced rank, but yada, yada, whatever. Um, so your first gig was with Cochise Consultancy. You know, uh, some, you know, those of us that are in the industry know about that. Um, how long did you work with them? And can you tell folks that are listening uh, who they are, what they are, if they're still around, and uh, what you guys were doing? Um, well, I haven't worked for Co – well, I worked from Co for Cochise mid-2004 to late 2005, in which – January 12th of 2005, I got blown up in a rocket attack outside of Fallujah, so I came home and took a little um, a little break to get my leg mended, and I got back right back into the fight. But um, I started out with Cochise in 04, um, working um, demo security, which is providing overwatch for explosive ordnance demolition technicians, and they were going through the CEA program, which was the Captured Enemy Ammunition Clearance Program. And they were going through all of Saddam's ammo supply points going, oh, you've got this. You don't even have the plane to transport this ordinance. Oh, well, this, this was manufactured in 1918. Well, we probably shouldn't even touch that. But they were going through and cleaning up the ammo supply points. And on average, it was a 300-ton shot, and it's the best fireworks show on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll, I'll bet I've I've seen a number of videos and, and, and pictures. Seen some of it myself, although I didn't do what you're talking about. But uh, that's interesting, man. So so you were in Fallujah? Did you were you was Fallujah where you uh, operated the entire time with with uh, Cochise? Um, no, actually, I started out in Fallujah. Um, that was Rock Paladin AST, which um, we were site security and demo security. Then I got blown up, got medevac back stateside, um, did a six- or eight-month rebuild. Well, they rebuilt my left lower leg because I had a golf ball-sized piece of bone that was taken out from shrapnel. Mm. But once I got cleared, I sent a letter directly to Jesse Johnson, which you couldn't ask for a better boss and a company to work for, in my honest opinion. They took care of me all the way across the board. But um, I sent him a message, and he sent me an email back. And he says, well, you know, we're near contract renewal. We're at 100% staffing. Let me see what I can do. Well, he's the boss of the company. <laughs> he, sent out, he sent out an email. He's like, I don't care if this guy sits at a desk looking at Internet porn all day. I want him back on game. <laughs> so needless to say, they flew me back over, and then I got attached to Mobile Team 5, which was a team that um, went to abandon ammo supply points in Mambas and Caspers, which are South African uh, manufactured mine clearing armored vehicles. They're actually pretty impressive. And we were, we were stationed at Fog Duke in the Joff, and then we'd, we were a mobile team, so we'd go out to these ammo, um, abandoned ammo sites and do site assessments and stuff like that. And then uh, Cochise didn't get the contract, and I went to work for EODT doing the same line of work. And I worked for them for about eight months, and I, I parted ways because of internal issues, but it wasn't me. It was something they were doing something else to another person. But regardless, um, I came home, and a guy that I worked with at Cochise outside of Fallujah contacted me, and he had went to work for DynCore International. And he says, "Hey man, would you be interested in an armor and possible shooter position with DynCore doing diplomatic security?" I'm like, "Well, heck yeah, why not?" <laughs> and I went and got um, went to VIR for DynCore and got State Department certified for shooter, and then for State Department armor, you got to go to all the uh, the factories of every weapon system the State Department has, become certified armor on them, and then you got to go up to D.C. and get tested out at the D site, which was no big deal. And then worked with uh, worked for DynCorp doing diplomatic security from 2007 to 2010, and then I left DynCorp and went to work for Triple Canopy down in Baghdad proper. And uh, I was initially assigned to Spartan 2, which was a QRF ERT team. And then they started up another team, Viking 3, and I was put in as shift lead of that team. And then I came home September 12, 2012, the day after Benghazi got hit. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a whirlwind tour. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. It, I've got. I had so many frequent flyer miles. I was literally donating them all the time. <laughs> well, I, I I remember those days, man. That's that's amazing. Uh, the, the the frequent flyer miles. Um, so, Cochise. Now, Cochise. Uh, I never worked for them, but I met a number of guys that did. And I remember meeting a fellow who, at the time, was in the army. I think. He said he was ex-Marine. He'd, got, he'd moved over to the Army, but he had done some work with them. He was an ex-Marine, um, but he uh, and but he was in the Army at the time. But he had mentioned the Cochise got their name, and maybe you can 
because uh, uh, people often ask, well, where'd they get the name? Cochise is, 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 is named after a county in Arizona or something like that. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Well, it's, it's, it's partially that name. And also, um, Jesse Johnson is Native American. I don't know what tribe, but I imagine it ties in with Cochise. And talking about funny stories, we were rolling out of the gate and the boss had came. And that was the other wonderful thing about Cochise is Jesse would fly in country just to go out to all the little sites all over just to see how the guys were doing. Hmm. He, you know, he, excuse language, he didn't give a crap of what Corps of Engineers or DOD. He just wanted to see how his guys were doing and making sure they were taken care of. But um, they were fixing to roll out of the gate. And one of the, the vehicle commanders, he always get on the radio before we'd roll out the wire. All right, everybody locked and loaded. We're heading out into Indian country. And Jesse was in the vehicle, and he goes, really? Would you care to, you know, explain the Indian country? And, and the guy, you know, he just felt about two inches tall. But, you know, Jesse joked it off. That's funny. That's funny. Um Yeah, I, I, a number of guys that I've talked with that worked for Cochise had nothing but good stuff to say about that company. I yeah. think that I think Cochise probably was one of the companies, uh, you know, one of the quote unquote smaller companies that um uh, that guys still talk about that um had exemplary uh service records um and yeah. really took care of their guys. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting with what I'm doing now. I work on Robin Sage, which is the the final phase of the Special Forces Qualification Course. And I still have my Cochise ball cap that I got when I was on MT5 and has a Cochise shield. It's a black sitting hat, and on the back it has Cochise. And it was interesting because um, the battalion commander and a chief warrant officer, five, something, 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 and this guy had more combat, cool guy things on his uniform that I could count. He goes, what do you know about Cochise? I'm like, I used to work for Cochise. And he goes, Really? Who's the, you know, he was, he was doing to see if he can find out if I was BSing him. He's like, right. well, who owns it? I'm like, Johnson. And he goes, okay. He goes, well, who works in the office? I'm like, his daughter, Tammy Scales. And he goes, okay, you're good. And it <laughs> turns out that Chief Warren Officer worked for Jesse directly when Jesse was Schwartzkopf's right hand man. Wow. So that kind of gave me some cool points with, you know, the, the guys were, were um, the higher ups within Sage. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> that, that's always a good thing, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's always, it's always nice to, you know, have somebody recognize something that you, you invested so much in, you know. Right, right. So now you worked for EODT, DynCorp, and Triple Canopy was your last company for, for working over there. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. So these some of these names people have heard of, some of them they know. Um, whether they've heard it because they're involved in contracting for security or they've heard it because they're in the defense aerospace industry. Would you care to, uh, uh, from your experience, uh, explain to folks, uh, what, uh, whatever level, de- whatever level of detail you want to go into, the differences, right. whether it was operational or, or, uh, culture or, or anything else between EODT, DynCorp, Triple Canopy versus what you saw at Cochise. Oh well, I mean, I, I'm I'm not trying to put the boss up on a on a pedestal or anything, but truthfully, uh, Cochise was by far the best company I worked for. Hmm. Um, EODT, I don't know if they're still in business or not. They're out of Tennessee, I believe it is. 
And yes. uh, there, there were some employees that worked for EODT that shouldn't have worked for EODT. I'll just be professional and say that. <laughs> uh, and then, and then DynCor and Triple Canopy, you know, just like any big company, you're going to have good and bad all the way across the board. You know, it's, you know, in, in a team, just, just like every team, you know, you just like in a, in a military unit, you have the guys that are the E4 mafia that, you know, do whatever the hell they want and don't think they're going to get caught. And then you have the old salts that have been there, done that, got the T-shirts and the scars, and the kids don't want to listen to them, you know. And also the age, when I started at Cochise, I was 33 going on 34 years old. I was the youngest guy on the team. Wow. Then when I'm in Baghdad, I was 40, 41, 42 when I was working for Triple Canopy. Most of the guys that came on board had just ETS from the military after a, a three- or four-year stint, and they weren't any older than my son at that time, which was 30 years old. So they kept getting younger, and, and, and the companies, and I'm not saying neither Triple Canopy or DynCorp, but all the big companies, they were wanting to get rid of the old salts that knew how to take care of business if business needed to be taken care of, and they wanted a bunch of II sir, three bags full. Hmm. So, you know, they're more apt to, you know, pick up the younger guys. And, you know, there, there has been, I've seen cases... Not mentioning companies, but older guys getting kind of forced out because they're the older guys and they actually have an opinion on how they should operate. And one of the companies, won't mention the name, but they they were trying to make it unicorns and pegasus, <laughs> as in no facial hair and, you know, for, for the longest time, diplomatic security. You know, you could have a beard or a well-trimmed mustache. Well, the company came out with a decision that no facial hair. So there were guys that had not shaved off their mustache since they had grown one when they were 15 years old being forced to shave them off. Wow. <laughs> because they thought it, and this was decisions made back stateside by bean counters as well. People that have never been downrange and have no idea about the culture in Iraq, you know, if you're out, out dealing with, with Bedouins or, or, or villages, they won't talk to people that are clean-shaven because they look at them as young and impetuous. They look at beards as a sign of maturity. So, you know, decisions made, decisions made. <laughs> right. You know, that that's an interesting uh, topic you touch on um, about the, the culture thing and the facial hair because, um, you know, I, too, work for a couple companies, maybe three, that, that had a, a formal policy of no facial hair. Well, you know, for the most part, some of us disregarded that or we certainly bent the, bent the lines really bad. Uh, you know, but that is something that I picked up real quickly, what you just said. They do, because of their culture, they respect the guy that's got facial hair and the older guy with a little gray or white or silver, they respect even more. Yep, yep. And also, and a, and a big thing is a lot of Americans, you know, this is just advice to contractors wherever you may be working. Get yourself a book or listen into the audio or even that Babel app. Show some respect to the culture where you're working by picking up at least conversational lingo. I'm not talking being able to, you know, read it because uh, I worked in the Middle East from 04 to 12 and I can speak a decent amount of Arabic but I cannot read the noodle. 
<laughs> Man. Yeah, you know, I remember uh, I, I never really learned Arabic. But go go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, you're you're, okay. you're just saying that. I've... Okay, yeah, no, I would just say I, I never learned Arabic. I, I, I learned almost conversational Pashto. Uh, when yeah. I was over in uh, Jalalabad, uh, because all of our interpreters were, were Pashtun or Pashtun or, or how anyway, and I picked that and and, and every day was 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 kind of like classroom day when I was with them, which was a great thing. Within within a couple weeks, I knew enough uh, that I could at least tell people no, get out of there, no, don't do that, and you know warn them, hey, if you keep doing that, I'm going to pull the trigger. Um, right. So that, that's kind of like when I was with Cochise, we were doing the demo security outside of Fallujah. Well, Cochise had hired some Jordanians that were prior special forces because most of Jordan's special forces was trained by Jesse Johnson or Cochise Consultancy. Wow. So, you know, we had some real deal Jordanian SF guys that worked with us. And and they speak like three or four languages. Hmm. Well, we'd sit in a gun truck doing our Overwatch, and I had a little notepad, and I'd go, okay, Inglesi sniper. Oh, Genaz. And I would write it down how I heard it. Instead of looking in a book, seeing how it's pronounced, and i go, okay, is that a long A or a, you know. It was way easier, and also you remember it easier when you write something down. Yep. So we would sit there for many hours a day and, you know, okay, one English. Oh, Wahed. You know, it means Latha, you know, and I sit there and write them down. And in it, within, just like you said, a couple of weeks, I started having, you know, basic conversational skills in the Arabic language. Right. Yeah, and, and that is a huge, you know, we got, you know, so many guys, like you were talking about, the, the, call them the younger guys, the newer guys, who knows why the culture. But so many of them overlook, whether it's here in the States, another country. But when you're working in an area, whether it's high risk or not, man, it is so important to blend in. And what I mean by blend in is not, you know, not blend in so you can't see me. But I mean, blend into their culture and try to get along, get along with them. It's the same thing when you go on a tourist trip, right? I mean, if you can at least try to speak their language, man, you'll get so much further. Well, that that's like every time I'd go on leave, especially when I was with DynCor and Triple Canopy, you would arrive in Dubai, and, and I can't remember which flight came and which one went. One was the 8 and one was the 7, I believe. But we would always arrive from Erbil International Airport an hour after the flight leaving Dubai was going to Atlanta. Hmm. Well... The wonderful thing is, is you were stuck there for 24 hours until the next flight. So we would rent a $25 crap box, five-speed, four-cylinder, and cruise around Dubai. Right. Well, when you when you speak the language or some language and they see that you're trying, you're not going to get the infidel price. Right. You're going to get closer to the local price, which makes it way, way cheaper. <laughs> right. Well, and you just get so much further. I mean, because, you, like you said, at least you're trying and they really appreciate that. I mean, it's not any different than somebody from a foreign country visiting here, at least trying to do the, the, the language. I don't put them down or belittle them for, for tripping all over. At least they're trying. Exactly. Well, that, that's the funny thing with going through Dubai is you go through the, the customs area, and you know that you'd walk up and you know, greet them, assalamu alaikum, and they're like, oh, and it's like, and they're like, oh, and they stamp your thing and send you along your way. <laughs> and no problem. 
the guy behind you that works out in the gym 12 times a day, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, I'm from Bronx, New York. What are you coming to my country for? You know, and then start giving him the fourth degree, you know. Right. Oh, man, that that is, you know, um, you know, for for people like us, you know, remembering that stuff that we tend to forget. That's <laughs> that is so that is so spot on, man. It's uh, <clears throat> so let, let me ask you, uh, you know, Dyncor and Triple Canopy, you know, you know, and they've changed. They've evolved like a lot of companies have over time. And yeah. uh, like you said, I don't know if EODT is still in business, um, but uh, I think they are. But Dyncor and Triple Canopy. They're, they're, the way they do things, their processes, I mean, you know, if you work for one company, you, you work for another, you, you work for them all. Is it that kind of thing with those guys? It's an incredibly small industry. So here's another hint of advice to anybody talking about getting into it. Don't make claims that you haven't done. People <laughs> claiming this and the other back in the day in the Wild West days, you know, there were guys flying into um, Baghdad. And literally headhunters from other companies, example one that I'd never worked for just because of the name was Custer Battles. Hmm. You know, they they would actually headhunt people. Oh, where, who you work for? Oh, well, we're paying this. And they would jump contracts. People would jump contracts. In which, you know, if you do crap like that, it's going to get you a black eye real quick within the industry because it's a small community. Right. But um, now um, – and like I said, the last I was over in the Middle East was 2012. But Dynecore and Triple Canopy, they have recruiters, or if you know in the industry they call them headhunters. That um, you have to, you know, apply. You have to provide copies of DD-214s, you know, and documentation backing up what you're claiming. Now, thank God. Right. And then uh, once you're accepted, then you have to, if if you are out of the military and you have a security clearance that's in limbo or you know it's being held you have to fill out an sf86c i think it is which updates you from the last time that you had a security clearance and to work overseas for um state department of those you have to have a minimum of a ts clearance Hmm. and uh once once you fill out the sf86 which is a gazillion pages um they, you may or may not have someone interview you after that. I think it's TSSCI that you have to have the interview and then the, then the, uh, the lie detector test and, and all that malarkey. But, um, last I had checked, it was only a top secret that you had to have work in State Department for the diplomatic. <clears throat> okay, so you've worked on both DOD and DOS contracts. Um, and, yep. and those of us who've done that, we know the difference. But can you articulate for, for folks, um, uh, in layman's terms, uh, what's the practical working man's difference on a contract between a DOD contract and a DOS contract based on your experiences? Oh, it, it would <laughs> be hard to say an honest opinion on that because when I was with DOD, it was back in the quote-unquote Wild West days that if you had to take care of business, there wasn't any big deal. Okay. But as times went on and stupidity incurred with companies, um, some of the British companies lighting up vehicles for no reason at all and, and all this other stuff, you know, they really clamped down on everything. Now, State Department, when, when I first started doing the diplomatic security, you could pop doors and warn off, you know, people to stay away from the motorcade and whatnot. 
then back in the day you could do warning shots and then they changed from warning shots to pin flares from pin flares to dazzlers which is basically like a laser that makes you woozy when when it's shined in your face a star wars gun <laughs> right <laughs> and then when i left in 2012 um, they couldn't keep any the security bubble, the PSS 101. They couldn't keep security bubbles on motorcades. They were popping the limo doors at places they shouldn't be popping doors, but it was because of people back stateside being counters making decisions that have never been in a, in a, in a hostile environment. Mm. Right. So, uh, I was going to say the, uh, it's interesting, uh, you were so when you worked for them. That was during the days when they called it WPPS or WPPS two, correct? Um, yeah, it was actually when I went with them. It was it was just transitioned from WPPS two to WPPS three. Okay, and then in two thousand and oh shoot, maybe ten, they decided to do change it from they dropped one P and went to WPS instead of Worldwide Personal Protection Services. Now it's Worldwide Protection Services. Right. And you had to go down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and do the transition course, which was the silliest thing that I've ever seen in my life. They had vehicles that you had to qualify off-road driving that State Department has never had in their inventory. And basically, the the here, sit down and do this PowerPoint and watch all this silliness in you know on here instead of you know being on a defensive posture just kind of be laid back you know it'll it'll be all good (laughs) (laughs) so when you guys when you guys did that so you're working for you're working on wps contract state department and you're employed by whatever company you're working for at that time um you guys uh, for those that are listening, and 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 I know it, it depended on the, on the task order and and what your, for lack of a better term, your rank was. So in other words, if 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 you were static or mobile security in one thing or another, um, but you guys lived on the co- embassy compound, or you guys lived out in the neighborhoods. Um, with with triple canopy, it was literally inside Camp Prosperity. We where we lived. We lived in the two person shoes, wet shoes. And uh, now, DynCorp. When I first went on board with them, we were down in Kirkuk at the Rio, which is the regional embassy office. And get this, it used to be Chemical Ali's workshop. So you couldn't get any of the local national cleaning crews, cleaning crews to go in in the storage rooms because at one point those were cells. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, okay, I, I myself, if I would have chosen a regional embassy office, I don't think I would have chosen the, the laboratory of Chemical Ali, but, hey, that's what they had chosen. <laughs> yeah. And we lived there, and we had shoes theirs as well. When they closed down the Rio and Kirkuk, the whole element from DynCor moved up to Erbil, which the Ankawa compound is actually equivalent of one, two, three, four small city blocks that have T-walls, 360 degrees around it. And we had uh, um, um, walk-in ECPs and vehicle entry control points, so it was a secure compound. Now, depending on the threat level, which it was always usually pretty low, you could walk outside, but you had to go outside with your with the radio. You were never allowed to go alone, which would only make sense. 
but um, you know, you could go out into um, Erbil proper and hit some of the stores and in the in the little video places and the and the the soda shops. Well, they sell beer there too, but I don't really <laughs> drink that much. So a lot of so a lot of this stuff um, that people have heard mixed stories about, um, a lot of it from from the beginnings to the end, uh, where we're at now, say 2020, a lot of it had to do with contract. And, and the company you worked for, uh, whether you lived on the compound, lived in the neighborhood, whether you could go off base on your off time and do stuff or not, correct? Yep, yep, exactly. Okay. Wow. So um, now with uh, EODT uh, you, you, and Cochise, you said you were on, uh, correct me if I, if I got it wrong, uh, it, it was mostly the, what do you call it, the the explosives or explosive disposal. I mean, that's basically what you guys were doing, correct? Well, we provided security for the guys playing okay. with the bombs. Right. That okay. Right. Clarify. That's what I. That's what I meant to say. So you guys would do the security yeah. element for the guys that were going out and getting rid of this stuff. Uh, generally, yeah. usually detonating it in place. Correct. Well, it it depends on the situation. Um, there was some there was some stuff that wasn't stable enough to move, so they blow it in the bunkers. But I didn't witness very much of that. What they would do is they would hire local nationals to to build up uh, the 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 shot, as they call it, in which you'd have you know a hundred one hundred fifty two millimeter artillery shells in a wooden crate that was made. When they do the shot, they would daisy chain everything together on usually non-L, which is non-electric um, um, initiator cord. And what they would do is they'd go out and they'd have a demo range set up, which was just usually out in the middle of the desert, you know, no berms or anything because it's in the middle of nowhere. And they would bring POSs out, which are palletized loading systems, which the, the chassis is like a Hemet, which is the heavy equipment multi-something-something-something vehicle. And they'd set the shots up, and, you know, we would set ourselves on the high point of the area and provide overwatch because after the demo shots were done, a lot of your refugees, after we'd clear it, they'd come in and collect up the brass because at one point brass was almost as valuable as gold in Iraq. Wow. Wow. Okay. So uh, so during your time with Cochise and EODT, uh, so, so that oh. was distinguished in terms of practical differences because with DynCorp and Triple Canopy, you were what, uh, uh, State Department stuff at that time? Yeah, yeah, okay. Triple Canopy and DynCorp was diplomatic security. Which, which I believe they're still engaged in along with another, a, a number of other companies. <clears throat> um, so can you explain to folks, uh, we throw out terms like chew, wet chew, one thing or another. Can you tell the folks uh, what we mean by chew and, and why a wet chew is preferable? Oh, okay. Well, chews, yes. Yeah, it's, it's containerized housing units, which imagine a mobile home with two bedrooms, and the wet chews are the ones that have a bathroom in the center, which is a shower, a toilet, and a sink. Dry chews just have two bedrooms. And one central entry door, you look to your left is the room on the left, and look to the right, and the room is on the right. And it's just like a one-bedroom, tiny little apartment. <laughs> and, and we've lived in both. <laughs> yeah, yes, I've lived in both. And also I lived in the back of, a, of an F-350, a gun truck, and a Mamba and Casper. So. 
So, so one good thing, especially on well, on DOD and State Department, with our cat cards, we could go eat at the defects, which is the dining facilities. And which right. at the embassies, it was always food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing all the stories when I was doing DOD stuff and, and thinking, wow, man, I want to do DOS contracts. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to badmouth anything, but, you know, I, I, I finally came around to the conclusion, and I've heard this sentiment art, um, echoed by a number of other guys. You know what? I think I want to go back to DOD contracts. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's there's drama on the DOS side, especially you know if you're working at the embassy or at the um, regional embassy office, you'll have diplomats and dignitaries come in. You know, example, one of the principals we had a uh, an, an IED initiation which didn't hit anything, but it was small arms fire. Well, one of the clients, they were returning fire towards the weapons that were firing at us. They, this client actually mentioned to the agent in charge, well, why don't you guys quit shooting at them? Maybe they'll stop shooting at us. Huh. Um, wait a minute there, Cupcake. They tried huh. to blow us up, and now they're shooting at us. Um, <laughs> That's funny. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's, there's, they should make a sitcom about diplomatic security, but it would almost be scary at the same time. <laughs> You know, I saw uh, uh, a real quick uh, aside. I, I saw something. Uh, you've probably seen the same thing. There's um, some promotional stuff. I think they call it Vet TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and that is not that. You know, they're right. If you haven't been in the military, uh, you're not going to appreciate it. You probably won't understand it. Uh, but that's the same. Yes. <laughs> that, uh, that. But it. I mean, that sort of stuff, you know, you can get away with to some extent. And I, I use that loosely on a DOD contract. DOS, no way, man. It's, uh, it's, oh, completely, yeah. it's completely different. You know, and speaking of that, so, so the process, <clears throat> the training process, the train up <clears throat> that you, uh, with DOS stuff, starting with WPPS as they, until they transition into WPS and from there on, uh, that whole thing is different because what you're talking about when you were in, it was, it was, basically a transition program. You were already, you know, a known commodity. Someone vouched for you. They're just vetting, and you're just making sure everybody sings off the same sheet of music, right, and getting you ready to go in. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it is a big referral industry, too. You know, um, you know, people that, that haven't been contracting downrange, you know, don't be discouraged. You know, you, you can probably find a gig somewhere or talk to somebody and, and find out, Hey, you know, do you know such and such? You know, and a lot of guys that are prior service, especially in the 18 series, you know, oh man, you know, Bob Smith is on, you know, whatever. Oh, okay, well, hey, I'm thinking about putting, it, and that's how it all starts. Right. Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, in fact, that's how I got my start. You know, um, when I was doing my civilian thing here in the states, and some, and I was working with some guy, and it, and that whole thing came up in conversation. I don't know why or how he brought it up, and one thing led to another. And six months later, boom, there I was. Yep, yep. And then that's what, that's kind of what happened with me. You know, when Uncle Sam wouldn't take me back, I was, I was bummed out because right. I wanted to do my part, you know. And I'm kind of glad Uncle Sam didn't take me back because a GS-12 at that time was paying a hell of a lot more than an E-6. And also, you're in country for 84 days and you get 28 days leave. 
If right. Uncle Sam would have taken me back, I would have been on an 18-month rotation. <laughs> right. right. Everything happens for a reason. But, yeah, you know, and, yep. and, and, but there's another distinction there, too, though. I mean, we're talking not everybody that goes over as a private security contractor has a military background. Some have law enforcement. Some have something else. But an awful right. lot of guys are prior military. I mean, so mm-hmm. we're the same guys that they're rooting and hollering for um, and cheering on when we're wearing the uniform. We're the, we're the same guys, um, <laughs> you know. So well, I've had I've had issues with some family members in the past that looked at me as nothing more than a mercenary, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, stop, stop the bus right there. A mercenary vows no allegiance to any country, and they go where the paycheck's at. I'm working for my country's government, and I'm working because I want to do it, not because the pay is good, which, you know, it was. Don't get me wrong. But there's, you know, more people that work downrange as contractors, old farts like me, Uncle Sam wouldn't take back, so they got got their chance to to do their part. It's not being mercenaries. No. No, no, and that and that's a huge distinction that's often lost in translation. People call it synonyms. They call it all kinds of things. Like, no, 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 no. There's a and, and you know your story is not dissimilar from a lot of other guys' stories. Kind of like mine. I wanted to get back in, and I remember watching the stuff on TV and going, "Wow, man!" I felt a patriotic duty. Finally, it caught up to me, and I got lucky and met the right guy. But you know, yep. you're right. We do not. Probably not everybody. I don't say everybody does it. But I'm I'm pretty confident that an awful lot of us do what we do, do what we did, because we felt a duty of obligation. Yep, you're exactly one million percent correct. So, and, you know, my my mom, when I first told my mother, oh my gosh, my mom went high right when I told her that I was going back over to Iraq. She's like, "Did the army take you back?" I'm like, "No." They called you back? No, I'm going on my... Why would you do that? And I'm like, because, Mom, there's protectors in the world, and I feel that I'm a protector. If I can protect U.S. interests and and American personnel, heck yeah, I'm going to do it. And she's like, well, why doesn't somebody else do it? And I'm like, well, I'm not somebody else. I'm me. Right, right. So let me ask you, so what a lot of guys have noticed a change they call it evolution, evolve, you know, however they explain it. But from your perspective, yeah. uh, how, what is the change that you've seen from the time that you first um, hit the ground over there until you flew home for your last time? What's the change you've seen in terms of, of how security is done and, and why do you think that, that change came about and do you think it's good or bad? Oh, wow. Uh, um, <laughs> Did I open a can of worms? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's Pandora's box in a million percent. But I will be professional in what I say. Okay. Um, when I started over there, you know, the client was your primary job. Make sure the, pri- the, the client is safe and nothing happens to that client, period. Regardless of, God forbid, your, your weapon's got a clear leather or, or anything along those lines, your primary job was to protect the principal, Get them off the X. If something happens, get them off the X. That's your primary. We're, you know, as a security contractor, we're technically a bullet sponge. We're supposed to take a bullet for the principal we're protecting. Right. By the time I left in 2012, and and I and I thoroughly believe it was the last administration that was in office, because even our interpreters were saying, "Don't vote for this guy." 
Wow. But anyway, um, by the time I left in 2012, it was, like I said before, unicorns and, 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 and just ridiculousness. Uh, instead of having a defensive posture where, you know, people will say, oh, man, we don't want to mess with those guys. Well, then they went to a, you know, a touchy-feely aspect to where, you know, oh, well, we don't want to look too aggressive. We can't keep a security bubble off of, off of the, 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 the limo. And, you know, the security of the, the client is paramount, but they were sacrificing, in my honest opinion, the safety of the client and the teams just because they could have a positive image. Right. And, and it, it, it was infuriating, you know, finding out that when I left in 2012, that they were popping limo doors at checkpoints. I'm not going to say what checkpoints because, you know, still stuff can get downrange to this day. I don't know if things have changed, but, you know, you never open the present until you get to the party. <laughs> but they were doing it before you get to the party. Wow. Wow. And, yeah, no, and it's like, it's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous what it had become in 2012. I don't know if things have changed. I hope and pray. I mean, I, I talk to some guys that are still in the industry. The pay has dropped dramatically. And it's just, it's silly on, on the things that are allowed to be gotten away with compared to the way that it had been. Thank heavens we haven't lost anybody on, on motorcade movements. But in time, it's just a matter of time. Right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, now the guys, there's a few guys that I, I'm still in touch with that are on contract over there, um, on DOS contracts, and I won't go too deep in that water. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But they do right. say, you know, it's, um, it is a whole different ball game now, and what you're talking about touchy-feely has gone to absurd points, and the only reason that they yeah. haven't quit is because, um, for reasons that maybe we can go into, Guys have a hard time after doing that for a while. They have a really difficult time finding meaningful work here in the states. Well, yes and no, but at the same time, when I was put in charge of Viking Three, we'd get new kids on the team, and I say kids because they're kids. You know, I'd, I'd do you know meet the team leader, lay out what we got to do. This is our task, such on and so forth, and you know ask them a little bit about themselves and. You know, I just got out of, you know, force recon, this, that, and the other. Okay, first thing you need to do, this is my, and I would always sit down and have this conversation with them because working in the industry for as long as I had, I've seen it happen a million times. These kids get on board, they get their first couple big paychecks, which they're not as big as they used to, but they get their first couple big paychecks, and their first lead rotation home, they go buy a $450,000 home and a brand-new Corvette. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, I... And I tell these kids, I'm like, this is what you need to do. And I, I guess it was fatherly advice, I guess, since I'm an old fart now. But I'd say, you know, you, what you should do is pay off every bit of your credit card debt. And right. then you need to build an oh shit fund. And most of them will go, well, what do you mean by an oh shit fund? Okay, well, an oh shit fund is, oh shit, either you get injured, you get fired, the company loses its contract, the U.S. gets kicked out. I was like, you need to have at least $100,000 in an oh-shit fund that you can survive on for a year minimum if you can't find a job. Right. And I said, you know, don't go out, you know, save your money. Oh, no, these kids would go out, but like I said, this one kid went out and bought a $450,000 home and a brand-new ZR1 Corvette, which was like $85,000. Wow. 
And he came back, and he showed all the guys, and what do you think? And I looked right at him, I was like, I think you're a fucking moron. Excuse the language, I'm, you ought to bleep. But, you know, you know, I myself, you know, when I first started contracting, the only thing that I did is I bought my wife a brand new Tahoe in which the reason she got to Tahoe is because her grandfather retired from Buick after 40 years, and we got the true employee discount. We got it at a killer price. And, you know, I wanted her to have a vehicle that way. She doesn't go to the garage. Oh, well, your blinker fluid's defective. It'll cost $1,500. No, she's got a vehicle she can just take in. If it's a maintenance issue, it's under warranty. Right. Me, myself, to this day... I, I'm driving a $1,000 Xterra, and I'm just happy as can be to do so because I don't need a car payment tying me down. Right. You know, um, when I was with State Department, when I, dro- I drove from Salisbury, North Carolina, to Baton Rouge, Louisiana for the transition course, and I drove my old Blazer, 92 Blazer with a gazillion flipping miles on it, but I take care of them, I maintain them, they last. Hmm. And I get down there, and the guys show up, and, Man, you've been contracting for so how long, and you're driving a 92 Blazer and this that, and I'm like, yeah, I am. The truck's paid for. I see it three months a year. Why do I need a new vehicle? That is just <laughs> ludicrous. And, you know, if you live within your means, you know, and don't be foolish, you can make some decent money. Right. But we had one guy that would go on leave when I was in Erbil with Dyncor, no names mentioned, but he would go to Las Vegas and drop 30-some grand on his leave rotation and not even bat an eye. Mm. <laughs> it's like, really, dude? Come on. <laughs> but, you know, the, what you're talking about, I mean, and we and we hear it here sometimes, too, is, is those are the things that we we call wisdom and experience. As you get older, you, you, you know, you, you've seen it enough, you've done it enough. It's like, you know what? <laughs> You're right. I mean, but talking to these guys, trying to tell them, it does, it, it kind of goes in one ear and right out the other. I mean, I, I knew a fellow on a contract in Afghanistan. He was a new guy, never done it before, and did exactly what you're talking about. And he came back one time from rotation and was talking about these, these lavish parties that uh, he'd gone to, Victoria's Secret stuff, and he paid $10,000 to attend and got to take pictures with them. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it was fun, but you spent how much? And that wasn't including everything else that he spent. It's like, holy crap, man. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The, the, yeah it's, it's, it's a different world, you know, and and it's, you know, for a lot of people that, you know, had had just ets you know, you're only making, I'm just going to go on the high side and say 30000 a year as a spec four or something along those lines. And then all of a sudden you're going to well now it well when I was doing it it was uh, 500 a day and 550 for shift lead I believe it may have been 535 but anyway now it's like you know 300 for shooter and I don't even know what the shift lead pays right yeah well and and that but yeah that, and there was mad money to be made back then there was well and, and of course there were then as there are now there there we call them uh, shadow or secret programs and and what i mean by that is that they're not well advertised and you only hear about them if you know somebody that knows about it that pay more they paid more then they pay more now but um uh you know you know the legendary 700 to thousand dollars those are the ones that are out there that 
you know, you get a call at 7 o'clock in the morning or in the evening. It's like, okay, well, when do you want me to fly out? Oh, 7 o'clock tomorrow morning. Your your flight's already booked. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that I've ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, the um, – yeah, so the, the pay dip. So I mean, but that's an that's a that's an important thing. And what you're speaking to is that somebody that's used to making what in the states would be decent income, and, and suddenly they're making two, three, or four times that amount of money. Um, they a lot yeah. of times they don't stop to think about you know the ramifications of what they're doing. It's like, well, that's great, but are you socking some of that away? But you know, the pay has gone down. And, and I've talked with guys um, on the show and and, and elsewhere. Uh, and I remember uh, recruiters trying to contact me when I got out, uh, you know, and it's like it pays how much? And they're talking one hundred and seventy five dollars a day. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I'll go flip burgers, <laughs> you know, exactly. You know, uh, with with once I quit working overseas, you know, I came home. I've got my irons in the fire with a few different things. And, you know, I, I do uh, corporate terminations, security work, um, armed and unarmed security stuff. And then also I work on the Special Forces Qualification course as an Op 4 um, role player, which it's great. You go camping for two weeks, you play with automatic weapons and explosives and get a check for three grand. <laughs> you can't ask much more than that. Oh, no, good times, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, the other fun thing about the Robin Sage is, I'm on ODA 9111, which is a great bunch of guys, and our lane boss is prior SF. A lot of the guys are, you know, that are on the lane are, are prior SF or are involved with uh, um, emergency medical technicians and stuff like that. And every morning, it's just like when I was contracting. Morning meeting, they have the whiteboard. You go over what's going on that day, do the weapons draw, such on and so forth. And it's like, wow, this is just like contracting again. <laughs> it's like you never left home, man. <laughs> exactly. Hey, everybody speaks English. What do you know? <laughs> yeah. So you know that's uh, can you know the, these terms get tossed around um, like ODA and OGA. Can you quickly clarify for people what what that refers to or what that is? Yeah, o ODA within this SF community is Operational Detachment Alpha, which is is a, is anywhere from a eight to a twelve man team which goes out and, and does special operations or unconventional warfare tactics. Now, OGA is other governmental agency, which I'm not going to confirm nor deny that it's just three more letters to complement right. the Complete Idiots Association. <laughs> I don't know, but... Oh, okay. I, that's the first time I've heard that one. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have laughed so hard, but that was funny, man. <laughs> well, we, we used it uh, as a term of endearment for some of the stuff working State Department that we had to take care of. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, we, we, uh, had to, we had to transfer some personnel up to the Iranian-Turkish border when the two hikers, air quotes, you can't see them because I'm talking on the phone, but the two hikers that got lost in Iran for 14 days or something yeah. like that, well, we had to take people – up to the Iranian border to meet with people to get the hikers back. Hmm. Okay. And, and I believe that was OGA or, or something along those lines. Right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, guys sometimes wonder if, if, if you're full of dookie when you talk about it. It's like, well, 
I mean, obviously, if if we've been there and done it, we can't go into great detail about it because we're even if we're not technically bound by the NDA, still it just makes common sense not to go in detail exactly. about it. But you know, it's like you know, ask me some questions, I'll tell you what I can remember, and you make up your own mind. Right. <laughs> well, and, and and also, you know, it's one of those scenarios where. We weren't doing any ninja secret squirrel crap. Right. All we were was attack right. service. <laughs> I mean, truthfully. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah, that, that's that's probably one way to put it, and, and it's probably not completely inaccurate. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, well, and, and that's the thing, you know, um, you, you brought up the term mercenary earlier, and and I know some people that have, you know, applied that term toward me or gun for hire. And, you know, yeah. I just kind of like let it run down my back. It's like, whatever, you know, that's really not what I am. Um, because we know yeah. um, because we were doing, uh, even though we have a president, but I call it, we were doing the king's bidding. Uh, we were going yeah. out and we were contractually obligated to do what they asked us to do. And yep. did, did sometimes did people do stuff that they, maybe they shouldn't have? Of course. But, you know, oh, yeah. but we usually took care of those guys, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Well, that would, you know, like I had mentioned early on about people that are getting into it, about claiming things that you haven't done. You know, they, they get outed real quick. You know, there there was one guy when that came on board um, with Cochise when I was still in Fallujah before I got blown up. The guy got transferred from Al-Assad up to Rock Paladin outside of Fallujah because the the site manager thought he was full of shit, excuse the language, but thought he was, couldn't confirm it 100%, and then he sent him up to us. Well, he came up there, and he worked a shift with me, and, and you know, I told him about my Desert Shield, Desert Storm experience, being convoy security and such on and so forth, and he mouthed off to, I don't remember who it was, it could have been the assistant site manager or something, and he says, oh, no, F this, Shipped the kid down to, uh, oh, Al-Assad. Yeah, shipped him down to Al-Assad, and then magically one of the guys that I knew down at Al-Assad contacted me. He was like, hey, man, what do you know about him? I don't remember this cat's name. I was like, well, I think he's as full of crap as a Christmas goose. He says, well, it's amazing because he's, he, was a, he was a convoy security gunner in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. I'm like, oh, really? So this guy would go to and, and listen to what people say, and then he'd parrot it and claim it as his own. Oh, yeah, yeah. But needless to say, since my buddy had heard him, he told his site manager, the site manager confronted him, he couldn't come up with any dates, he couldn't come up with any locations or anything like that. And the saying in the industry is, window or aisle, chicken or beef. <laughs> yeah, right? Oh, man. Uh, you know, or uh, the first smoker out. Um but you know, I, that that's interesting to bring that up because it comes up a lot in conversation, and and uh, I quickly learned on my first contract exactly what you're talking about because um, uh, my wife had inadvertently, she claims, uh, swept up and tossed away my my DD214, which at that time was on Microfish, and it was a you know, oh, and it's yeah. like it's like how the heck do you sweep that? How do you not know what that is anyway? But uh, so one thing, one thing led to another, and eventually I started taking more and more stuff off my resume because it's like, you know, I've got nothing. I can't corroborate. I can't prove anything. Right. And, but what you're saying is that, you know, that's fine. We've all we've all got our, our war stories. But, you know, if, you're right. If you can't prove it, don't list it. Don't talk about it. Nobody cares unless they ask you. 
Yep, exactly. And 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 my big thing is, you know, with me working for Cochise, me working on the SFQ course now, I'm not 18 series, and I will never claim to be 18 series. And which, for the people listening, 18 series is the is the the, the nomenclature for special operations soldier. Um, you have 18 alphas, bravos, charlies, deltas, and echoes, but I was never one. I've worked with them. I've got a hell of a lot of jo- on-the-job training with them, but I've never went through the course, and I don't have a Green Beret, and I'll never claim that. Right. Not only because, A, you'll get outed, but, B, it's just not right to do, right. period. Right. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, it's, you know, a lot of people, we used to call them pokes. And, and, uh, you know, you know what Pogue refers to. And I thought it was interesting when I found out what a Pogue really was. You remember when they had the, uh, kind of like that thin cardboard wafer currency for, for AFEs and whatnot? Yep. <laughs> and it's yep. like, oh, that's a Pogue or Pog. Okay, Pog, Pogue. But everybody, you know, yep. referred to people as Pogues. You're like, interesting, you know, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, you know, you, and until you know, what a person goes through to get what they've been granted, it's like you, you can't you can't appreciate it until you and you know. Anyway, so yeah, no, I'm there 100. percent And uh, you know, thankfully there, there's there's people and networks and things you can do to to find out if a person's right or not. Um, I mean, I've had to, you know, and and I don't I, I never liked doing it, but it had to be done. You know, out guys, you know, check check on their claims and then you know report it up the ladder and just say. <laughs> You know, um, and fortunately, every time it, it did get reported that they acted on it. But it's like it never yeah. ceased to amaze me how many guys claim this, claim that. And one thing or another is like, holy crap, dude, stop. You know, and at some point you yeah. say, you know, if that's the case, wouldn't you be over here doing this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and then the other thing is, you know, you back in the Wild West days, there was such a, a shortage of manpower that they were, you know, plussing up not only the military, but they were plussing up on the PMC side. Right. So people were sending resumes claiming all this wazoo crap on it, and a lot of the companies didn't have time to investigate it, so they slid them under the carpet, and they get on board. Right. And then, you know, it's it's frustrating. You know, example, um, there was one guy that claimed to be a medic and know all this wazoo crap, and then this wasn't my team. This was another team. Team gets hit, and this guy not only freezes but didn't know what the hell he was doing. Wow. So it, you know, and not only you know if you claim something that you're not, not only it could cause you to lose your life, it could cause loss of life as the whole team potentially. Right. And and so many people don't think of that. Right, and, and that and that's a huge thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and, and that was kind of you know brought to my attention when when I was having some. Uh, family issues uh, when I was on DOS contract and uh, my head wasn't there. I mean, I was doing fine. I was performing fine, but everybody could tell. I couldn't tell, but they could tell I wasn't 100%. And, you know, one of the instructors came up and said, hey, dude, you know, and, and uh, you know, I was, you know, I was able to, you know, uh, I think the bridge called thread the nut, <laughs> you know, uh, and I stuck with it and I, and I was able to shake it off and get, but you're right. And, and people don't understand that because, you know, uh, not everybody's going to get shot at. Not everybody's going to get blown up. But you know what? You got to be prepared. And if your head isn't in the game and you're not right, you're right. it's not yep. just that guy's life. It's everybody around you and maybe the guy that you're supposed to be protecting. Exactly. Exactly. 
So that is that is a huge important thing. Um, what what I found was humorous is um, during this big air quotes again pandemic, um, I worked security out in Seattle, and I forgot to take my Robin Sage magnet off the back of my Xterra. And this guy, he's prior he was prior eighteen series. Everything that he said jives, but he was arguing with me that I wasn't SF. And I'm like, no, dude, I'm not SF. Oh, well, I know by fact you have to be prior 18 series to work on Robin Sage and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, when did you go through the queue? 1982. Okay, dude, a lot of things have changed since 1982 within the, the Robin Sage scenarios in the class. Well, no, no, you're, 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 you just don't want to say it. I'm like, no, dude, I am literally telling you I'm not special forces. Maybe special ed, but I'm not special forces. <laughs> And this guy, he, he basically called me a liar. And I'm like, dude, you know, if I was doing stolen valor, you'd kiss my butt right now. <laughs> but the truth, you're, you know, you're getting mad at me. Right. Yeah. You know, and I've seen and read some stuff about guys trying to get people to calm down because everybody's trying to rat everybody out and call everybody out for this and that. And it's like, you know, I mean, I used to have some guys try to call me. I was like, dude, I never said this. I never said that. You inferred it. You came up with it on your own, uh, but yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, so let, let me ask you, um, uh, you know, so now that you you finished your last contract in 2012 and you started, what you started in, what, what was the year you, your first contract again? 2000, uh, 2004. 2004, right? Man, that's a long time to be doing it. Um, so, are you glad to be done with that, or would you like to still be doing it? Oh, just like my wife said when I was in a wheelchair from the rocket attack, we were playing spades with my friend and his uh, fiance. She, my buddy goes, what are you going to do once your leg gets healed? And I was like, go right back. And his old lady looked at my wife and she goes, you're going to let him? And my wife says, let him go back. He told me to F.O. and go do it anyway. She goes, you can't put an old war horse out the pasture. It's just not something that happens. Right. In which, you know, now, I mean, I, I'm, I would consider going over maybe an, a, as a uh, – not managerial, but, um, well, maybe it would be managerial. You know, I'm not a young buck anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be 50 this year, and, you know, it's, it's time to let the younger bucks handle it. You know, I, can, I could be an advisor or something along those lines, but the running and gunning, I do, I do it at Robin Sage, but not for an extended amount of time. The amount of training that we were over there, you know, I can't tell you how many thousands of rounds that we put down range at the range when we weren't working. You know, when you're not working, you're training. And humping around body armor and magazines, I don't know. I could hold out too long. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, speaking of uh, training, um, something that maybe people aren't quite aware of is the amount of instruction and or training that is involved uh, when you're doing this sort of thing. I mean, some companies are better at it than others. Some provide more and better. Um, but can you can you hearken on that a little bit so people kind of get a, an idea of what it's all about? Oh, it, it depends on, you know, what you're going – if you're on a movement team, arrivals and departures are, are trained on quite a bit. That way it's a fluid movement. Um, you, practice, you, you do training on uh, – Attack on principle, you know, if they're walking, as they call it, walking the fence line, having a meeting, and something happens, what you do to get the principle out of the threat area. Um, if you're on an ERT team, 
you, you practice doing crossloads, which is an emergency response team, or QRF, quick reaction force. You know, you show up where, example, the IED went off, vehicle down. You show up, which the, t the movement team should have already transferred the principal to the backup limo and then gotten off the X, as the, as the saying is. But just in case, you know, QRF shows up, they know which vehicle the principal's in. And, you know, they, they take care of business. They'll put up, quote, unquote, a wall of steel of the armored vehicles around the, the remaining vehicles of the motorcade. Um, you also do, you do practicing of uh, room clearing because, uh, you know, you have to be able to extract your client. If, you know, if he's in an unknown building, you have to know how to, as they say, slice the pie, enter rooms, clear danger areas. And then uh, another thing is um, tactical site surveys. Before a client goes to a venue, usually a couple days beforehand, uh, well, up to a week, you try to get out to the venue, find out how many rooms in it, what room could be used as a hard structure, a, a safe area from explosives or a small arms fire. Um, you check the, the, the risk analysis of that site survey to see where potential weaknesses in their security is. Do they have closed circuit television? Um, do they have a guard force on site already? And how trustworthy is the guard force? <laughs> you know, we never had anything to worry about when we were up in Erbil and Kirkuk areas because we had uh, Barzani security. Um, some of the guys I worked with trained some of Bar Barzani security detail, and we had the backup of Peshmerga, which is the Kurdish Special Forces, and also the Al Saish, which is the Kurdish Secret Police. Hmm. But you know, there's a lot of things involved, a lot of moving pieces when when a movement is is being made. Right, right. So um, in terms of uh, instruction and training, state uh, was was most of it stateside, or was it overseas for you guys? Um, well, your initial classes are here stateside, and, you, have, you know, um, the, the training involves, um, like I said, arrivals and departures. You know, you have a three-vehicle motorcade. Okay, the right rear and left rear get out and assume this position, and, and the, the agent in charge does this. I won't get into any specifics because, obviously, it's, they're, they're most likely still using the same stuff today. But arrivals and departures. That way, you know, it, it's, it's fluid. And also right. you need to know how to fill a hole, quote, unquote. You know, if the left rear isn't doing his job and you're in another vehicle, well, you get out and you fill his spot. That way there's not a gap in security. Right. But you do your initial diplomatic security here stateside, at least that it used to be. And when I was with DynCorp, we had to go up to Virginia International Raceway to do the training for arrivals and departures, attack on principle, such on and so forth. And then uh, we had wet track training, which you, you take a car and the, the instructor puts his foot on the gas pedal and you try to make sure it doesn't wreck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's um, uh, it, it gets a little bit more complicated. But that you're you're talking about the the traditional oval track that's all wet. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, you you also do training on how to uh, motorcade movements if you encounter a blocked road. You can, um, if you're able to drive through, push through, ram through, or if it, you can't get reverse out and do turns and all that neat Hollywood crap. And then, uh, and then I'm trying to think. There was one other thing that we had a lot of fun with. Oh, well, the drive through and ram through. They'd buy old junker cars and park them there, and they taught you the weak points of where to hit a vehicle to make it through a, a barricade or, or a blocked road. 
Um, you're, you're taught how to do pit maneuvers, which are pursuit, intervi pursuit intervention techniques, I believe is the name. So, I mean, you get to, you, you learn how um, vehicles handle with armor and without armor, you know, the dynamics of how to go into a curve and how to do this. And it was actually very, very, very interesting, and also I was getting paid to do this, so it was a lot of fun, too. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I remember as uh you know, you'd like to do it again, um, but, you know, like you said, we're getting a little long in the tooth there, and it, or older, however you want to call it. Um, uh, so let me ask you, Jeff, uh, so you, you're still in the game. Uh, it's a different type of game, but you're still in the game. Um, so what are you doing these days, and what are your plans for the future? Well, my plans for the future is to get up every day and be on the top side of the dirt, but, you know, <laughs> hey, you never know. But um, work-wise, I, I do oversized wide-load flag car. I'm sure you, your your listeners have seen them. You've seen them like when you have a, a big piece of equipment, you have a little pickup truck with lights and flags on the front or and, and one in behind it to make sure that it's a safe transport from uh, point of departure to point of delivery, which in a way is kind of like convoy motorcade movements, which they have me running back door because I make it to where they don't even have to even look. They got the lane. Hmm. In which, you know, that. That's good money. It you know it pays. Some of them pay a buck and a quarter. Some pay a buck twenty three a mile from pickup point to drop point. Hmm. So you know that makes good money. You know, and then I do uh, corporate terminations and also uh, executive protection for a couple different companies. I won't mention names for NDA reasons. But um, I worked security during Hurricane Florence for a medical team that was going around to the uh, refugee or evacuation sites. Um, I also, as I said before, I work on Robin Sage um, on ODA 9111 as an Op4 role player, which I get to play a bad guy, which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I figure, you know, for the future, you know, uh, well, another thing I do, I'm a gunsmith and a State Department certified armor. Hmm. I also uh, do some work for uh, Recoil Management Academy, which it's, it's a small starting company, which the owner, Kirk Peavy, he and I work together in Erbil and Kirkuk, and he's a prior 18 series, and he's getting this up and going, and he knew my weapons capabilities, so I built a few weapons here and repaired some there, and, and then once recoil management gets up and rolling, I'm, well, I'm already their full-time armor, but they haven't officially opened their doors yet. Huh. But between that, my flag car, the executive protection, and Robin Sage, I kind of got my hands full, but at the same time, it keeps me busy. Uh, I, I know it does. <laughs> Sometimes just getting a hold of you <laughs> is, is not easy. Yeah, no. That, so, you know, um, and you had mentioned that you'd done some security work uh, in the Seattle area here fairly recently. And I think when you and yeah. I talked a year or two ago, um, you were doing something uh, somewhere in the upper Midwest or something like that, something to do with pipeline or something, right? Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. That was in Virginia for the uh... – natural gas pipeline that they were doing. And that was probably one of my healthiest gig because I was going out and doing security with the uh, surveyors, the, uh, oh, daggone it, the people that um, dig up dinosaur bones. Daggone it, I'm having Archaeologist? a senior moment. Thank you very much. That's exactly <laughs> right. Interesting. When when they're, they're doing a pipeline, they have to do a survey, and then they have archaeologists that will go every 18 inches and dig down 18 inches and whatever they pull up out of the post hole diggers, if they find any old pottery or arrowheads, 
then they expanded out to a three by three square and they found uh, ancient um, furnaces and all kinds of stuff going through the pipeline. They found an un, um, an unmarked cemetery that had 12 bodies in it that, wow. you know, they had headstones, they were buried, but it was 12 people that were buried up in the mountains of Virginia that hadn't been seen since the 1930s. <laughs> huh. Wow. But yeah, going, you know, as, as a crow flies, it would be three miles, but going up and down the mountains, it's like seven miles per day. <laughs> You're right. Like my calf, Popeye's forearms. <laughs> oh man! So, uh, so, so you, so you're doing pretty well for yourself these days. Um, if somebody was interested in contacting you for work or just wanted to get a hold of you and ask you or whatever, is there a place or way for them to get a hold of you if if, if they're interested? If you want to divulge it. Um, well, yeah, I mean, um, if they wanted to get hold of me, I am on Facebook. I am, I'm accepting friends, and, you know, if they would send a friend request and a message with it stating where they heard from and what they were interested in, then I would reply. <laughs> That's always nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. So uh, as we as we come to a close on this episode, is there, is there one, maybe one thing or, or two that you'd like to leave people with, something to think about? Um, main thing for everybody that's listening, be an American, be an American, stop this hyphenation of everybody that is this or that or the other. We're all Americans. We're in this country together and people, the, the racism thing is out of control. The easiest thing for everyone that's listening, look at every person that you look at. Don't Look at their color. Do it just like Martin Luther King said. Judge a man by the content of his skin, not by the color of his skin. Right. And my my saying for everybody, mine's a 21st century version of it, I don't care what color you are, I determine whether or not you're a butthead. <laughs> amen, amen to that. All right. Uh, so as, as, we, as we wrap this, uh, this session of, of, of this episode up, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and I want to thank and a special thank you uh, to uh, Mr. Jeff Paul for being the guest uh, on this episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed it, and uh, remember, be careful what you ask for, and until next time, everybody, keep it real.